set free And Lord give to us A passion for your word That we may grow and walk in all your ways On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor Jim Jarrett Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Chapter 19 in Luke's record of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. And last week we began looking at Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, which really completes our look at Paul's ministry to the Ephesians. So once again this morning, Acts chapter 20. We're going to cover verses 22 to 27 this morning, so let me read our text. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 27. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, if you were here last week, you will remember that Paul left Ephesus for Jerusalem via Macedonia, probably Philippi. And then after traveling through Macedonia and Achaia, he went to Corinth, spent three months there. From there on to Troas for a week, Paul then left, traveling overland while his companions sailed, and they met up in Asos, and there Paul boarded the ship, and they sailed to Mytilene. And then after making a couple of stops along the way, they arrived in Miletus, and we read in chapter 20, verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so Paul was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and he decided to sail past Ephesus and go right on to Miletus. But we read in verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. While he was in Miletus, despite being in a great hurry, Paul used this opportunity to send for the Ephesian elders. Because his love and concern for the church and these men compelled him to see them one one last time. He wanted to share his heart with them. There were important issues he needed to speak to them about. And so he sent word for them to come to him and Miletus. And they came. They dropped everything and came. Why? Because the ministry and the things of God were the priority in their lives. And that brings us to verse 18, and what we have in verses 18 to 38 in summary form is Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. And as we said last week, here we get a unique picture of Paul the pastor and what was important to him as a leader and shepherd of God's people. These are Paul's last words of instruction to the Ephesian elders, and it's a very moving passage of Scripture from which we can glean some practical lessons for ourselves. 
You'll remember from last week, we said that Paul's message really divides into four parts. First, in verses 17 to 21, Paul reviewed the past and speaking about his three-year ministry in Ephesus. Secondly, in verses 22 to 27, he discussed the present, his trip to Jerusalem and what awaited them there. Thirdly, in verses 28 to 35, he will speak about the future, warning the elders of the dangers the church would face. And then fourthly, in verses 36 to 38, we have his actual farewell, a prayer and then his farewell. Last week, we looked at verses 17 to 21 as Paul reviewed the past, speaking about his ministry in Ephesus. And you'll remember, he reminded the Ephesian elders of what kind of man he was and of his ministry among them for three years. He said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. And that was Paul's motive for ministry, serving the Lord. Paul saw his ministry first and foremost as a slave of Christ, and he considered it a great honor and privilege to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords in this way. And Paul also reminded them of the manner of his ministry. His service was characterized by three things. He served the Lord Jesus Christ as a faithful slave with all humility, with tears, and with many trials, and yet through it all. Paul had an unshakable commitment to God, his people, and to boldly proclaiming God's word. And Paul then reminded the Ephesian elders of the message that he preached. He held back nothing. He declared to them everything that was profitable and everything, in other words, the entirety of God's word. Paul faithfully declared the word of God publicly and privately to everyone, both Jew and Greek, declaring that they must repent and believe. They must repent and put their faith in Christ alone for salvation. And that brings us to verses 22 and 27, our text for this morning. And here Paul now shifts from the past to his present circumstances, telling his brothers and and co-laborers in the Lord of his trip to Jerusalem and the sufferings that awaited him there. Notice verse 22. Paul says to them, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. You'll notice that Paul describes himself as being constrained by the Spirit. This word constrained is commonly used to refer to physical binding with chains or ropes. It's used figuratively to speak of the powerful ties of the marriage bond. And it refers to any strong obligation or anything that strongly urges or drives. The idea is to compel someone to act in a particular manner. And so Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem because I am compelled to do so by the Spirit. And the way some translations read, Paul is referring to his own spirit with a small s. However, in others, as it is in the ESV, it's the Holy Spirit with a capital S. And so which is it? Is it Paul's spirit or is it the Holy Spirit? Well, some commentators take it that Paul had an inner compulsion to go to Jerusalem, but it was not from the Holy Spirit. It was Paul's own idea. In fact, one commentator, well-known commentator, goes as far as to say that Paul was sinning by going there. But in verse 22, Luke appears to indicate that he's alluding to the Holy Spirit, especially in light of the fact that in the following verse, he explicitly writes the Holy Spirit. 
And in the context of the passages that emphasize the guidance of the Holy Spirit in Paul's missionary work, such as Acts 13 and Acts 16 and chapter 19, verse 21, and in the context of the reference to the Holy Spirit here in verse 23, in connection with imprisonment and afflictions waiting for him, the phrase, by the Spirit, in verse 22, must refer not to Paul's human spirit deciding to go to Jerusalem but rather to God's Spirit imposing on Paul the necessity of visiting Jerusalem again. And since Luke does not give us the slightest hint that Paul was sinning or making a serious error here or in in 19 verse 21, and since Paul was a man who walked in close fellowship and communion with Christ, I have no doubt it was the Holy Spirit compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem. As a slave of Jesus Christ, Paul was going to obey what he believed the Holy Spirit was compelling him to do, no matter what. And so as far as Paul was concerned, he had no choice in the matter. He must go to Jerusalem, even though, as verse 22 says, he did not know what would happen to him there. But this is qualified by the assertion in verse 23 Notice verse 23, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so in every city, in every city the Holy Spirit, perhaps through direct revelation and through prophets like Agabus, the Holy Spirit warned Paul that that prison and, and hardships awaited him. And yet the Holy Spirit compelled him to keep traveling to Jerusalem. Paul didn't know the specifics. He didn't know the sequence of events or the outcome, but he knew that he could expect persecution in the form of imprisonment and afflictions. But that didn't stop him. A lesser man would have looked for a way out of going to Jerusalem, but not Paul. I mean, Paul was too gripped by his devotion to Christ. He was going to Jerusalem. Because his overriding concern was not at all cost to survive, but rather to be faithful and obedient to Christ that he might complete his Christ-given task of bearing witness to the good news of God's grace. Well, why did Paul share this with the Ephesian elders? Well, we don't know uh, the mind of Paul in this. But obviously, this was a, a, a teaching moment. And there were certainly things Paul wanted them to understand. We can perhaps surmise what a couple of those things were. First of all, he wanted them to understand that we don't need to know about tomorrow's details. And this is tremendously freeing. Because if you're a pessimist, you probably dream of a dozen things a day that may go wrong tomorrow that will make you miserable. But this text means that what God requires of you and I today and tomorrow is not that we have to make things work. Success in human ventures is not the measure of God on your life. What God requires of you today and tomorrow is that you're faithful and obedient to Him, trusting Him in all things, and then let the chips fall where He wills. Let God worry about tomorrow. I mean, that that is very freeing. I mean, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
Instead, Jesus said, we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Everything that we need will be added to us. We don't need to worry about tomorrow's details and troubles. One man said, anxiety is living out the future before it gets here. Faith is trusting that when the future comes, our Father will be there to give us what we need. That's exactly right. We don't need to know or worry about tomorrow's details. Rather, like Paul, we must understand that God is in complete control of our lives and and all that happens to us. And that's the proper biblical perspective. To see that everything that happens in our lives is ordained by God who has a purpose and a reason in it all, though we may never know what that is. And as Paul said in Romans 8.28, a verse we so often like to quote and seem to forget so quickly. But as Paul said in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul wanted these men to understand that we don't need to know about tomorrow's details. We don't have to have all of the specifics. We just need to trust him. And then secondly, Paul wanted them to understand that the question is not whether there will be hardship, pain, trouble, and affliction. There will be. There will be. I mean, Paul said to all the churches in Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. That's that's a a verse you don't often hear or probably will never hear in a place where the prosperity gospel is preached. But that's what Paul told young believers in the church, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. As Paul said to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so the question is not whether there will be trials, trouble, persecution, and affliction. The question is whether we believe that faithfulness to Christ in all those things is better than life. When Paul thought about the suffering that awaited him, he wasn't upset. These things didn't worry him or deter him. Why? Well, because he valued Christ above his comfort and even his own life. And therefore, he was prepared to lose his freedom and his life for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul looked at life from a higher perspective than most of us. Comfort, self-interest, self-preservation were not high on on Paul's list of priorities. In fact, I think it's safe to say the last thing he ever thought of was self-preservation. And where are all of these things on our lists? First. But you see, Paul had a commitment to Christ that superseded comfort, convenience, self-interest, and self-preservation. And that had been his pattern of life ever since he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. But for most people, convenience, comfort, self-interest, and self-preservation are the number one priority. I mean, we live in a very self-centered society, a narcissistic society. If you don't believe it, just go on social media and look at all the pictures people post of themselves. We live in a self-centered, narcissistic society. And that is one reason people are so miserable and make those around them miserable as well. Jesus was the number one priority in Paul's life. 
and self-interest and self-preservation were at the bottom. And that is why imprisonment and afflictions that awaited Paul had no hold on him. Because he lived for Christ. It didn't matter to him what happened. And that is why he can say in verse 24, notice, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Paul didn't consider his life as a valuable, uh, precious possession to be held on to. No, he understood that his life belonged to Christ. That it was the precious, valuable possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, his life was not to be lived for himself, but rather for the Lord. And so if necessary, Paul was willing to sacrifice his life for the sake of Christ. And this selfless willingness to sacrifice one's life was the spirit of Jesus and of all the, earthly, all the early Christians. I mean, faithfulness to Christ and their calling was more important to them than, than life itself. And when one or the other was to be sacrificed, they would gladly give their lives. They were not going to compromise their faithfulness to Christ. Why in the world uh, do you think that so many Christians in the first century were willing to die, willing to go to the Colosseum and, and be torn apart by lions rather than simply saying, Caesar is Lord and offering a pinch of incense. They refuse to do that. Today, I, I, I could see in the church justifying that. Well, you know, it's no big deal. Just a little governmental thing we got to do. Just a little pinch. And saying Caesar is Lord, we don't really mean it. But hey, who wants to go to the lions? But not the early Christians, not Paul. They refuse to compromise in even the slightest way because their desire was to be faithful to the Lord who loved them. Paul was willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ. And in fact, he did. He actually did. It's one thing to say, I'm willing to lose everything. It's another thing altogether to actually lose everything. And Paul did. He most certainly did, and he did so gladly. Because his goals, his dreams, his past achievements, his possessions, and even his life meant nothing when compared to Christ. I mean, Paul said in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung is what the word literally is. I've suffered the loss of all things, he says, and count them as dung in order that I might gain Christ. I mean, Christ was everything to Paul. Paul didn't consider his own life of, of any value nor as precious to himself. As far as, as he was concerned, Jesus Christ was everything, absolutely everything, and must be placed first ahead of anything and everything else. And if following Christ meant hardship, slander, imprisonment, or death, he had settled that issue long ago. He was willing to die for the Savior who loved him and died for him. And this same type of commitment was seen in the life of 
a man named James Calvert, a young pioneer missionary to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands. En route to the islands, the, the ship's captain tried to, to stop him, tried to dissuade him. Finally, the ship's captain cried out in desperation, you are going to lose your life and the life of those with you if you go among such savages. And Calvert calmly replied, we died before we came. We died before we came. You see, that faithful missionary had signed over his life to Christ. See, all too often the church conveys the wrong message that there are two options for the Christian life. The most popular option is to go to church when it's convenient, drop a few bucks in the offering plate now and then, live for the American dream of accumulating enough money and stuff to live a comfortable life. And if you have time, you may decide to volunteer at church, but only if the service is to your liking and when it's convenient. Your priority in life under this option is to enjoy yourself, live a good life, someday retire, and spend all the, the remaining years of your life driving around America in your motorhome or playing golf or fishing or picking up seashells on the beach or whatever. The point is, in this first option, it's all about you. And you living your life for yourself. The second option, which in reality is the only true option, is not so popular. And this option involves actually believing and taking seriously Jesus' words in Mark 8, 34 and 35, where he said, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. In that context, when Jesus called people to this radical self-denial to the point of death as, as taking up your cross implies, he was not calling people to some kind of super committed discipleship track. No, he was calling them to salvation. And this is what he calls every follower of Jesus to do, not, not just a few super committed disciples. This is basic Christianity. Every single believer is called to this total, all-out, self-denying, laying-down-your-life kind of commitment to Jesus Christ. This is for every Christian. And Jesus is pretty graphic about what He'll do with those who profess to know Him, but who are lukewarm in their commitment. He said in Revelations 3.16, He's going to vomit them out of His mouth. That's pretty graphic. If Christ bought you with his blood, you belong to him as a slave. Slaves don't choose to serve. Slaves are under orders. So when things get difficult, if the service isn't pleasant or fun or convenient, they're not free to quit and not show up and just go do their own thing. The slaves of Christ, we don't belong to ourselves. Scripture tells us we've been bought for a price. We belong to Him. 
And we belong to him lock, stock, and barrel. And therefore, the Bible also says, we're no longer to live for ourselves, but for him. And so this means our primary commitment in life and in all that we do is to be a faithful slave of Jesus Christ, carrying out the will of our Lord and Master in order to bring glory and honor to him. This is biblical Christianity. Every single believer is called to this total, all-out, self-denying, lay-down-your-life kind of commitment to Christ. You see, the goal of life is not to have a long life, but a full life, meaning one that is lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you something. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine what would happen in the church in our nation today if every genuine believer placed Jesus Christ ahead of anything and everything else. Just imagine. They would say of us as they did the early church, they have turned the world upside down. So you see, there's only one option when it comes to the Christian life. But I guess in another sense, you could say there are two options. But the first is to live for yourself in worldly pleasure here and now and face God's judgment and wrath in hell for eternity. Remember, you try to save your life by living for yourself, Jesus said you'll lose it. And the second, which in reality is the only true option, is to put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation and then truly live for him. Because in doing so, Jesus said, you'll save your life. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And who are you living for? Who or what are you living for? And you know, the glorious truth is that once a person entrusts their life totally to Christ, They don't need to live in fear. They don't need to live in fear of the future or anything else for that matter because our future is in his hands. Right? Amen? And so we should live all out for the Lord each and every day knowing that when he brings trials into our lives, he'll also give us the grace and the strength to endure them. But we must live in light of eternity. We need to quit being so short-sighted and living only for today. We need to live in light of eternity, not for the fleeting pleasures of this world. And the only way to live in light of eternity is to be totally abandoned to Christ here and now, trusting in Him in every trial, regardless of what comes our way. You know, I read that Karl Marx wrote that communists are dead men on furlough. In other words, they treat themselves as though they are as good as dead. They have nothing to lose, so they're ready for anything. Well, that characterizes even better what a Christian really is. He is a dead man on furlough. In other words, he wants nothing for himself, but wants only to have God exalted and Christ manifested in his life, whether he lives or dies. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a win-win situation for believers. God had given Paul a cause to live for that was so profoundly satisfying 
that it was more valuable than life itself. So that freed Paul for a kind of reckless abandon toward life and ministry and danger. He lived full on for Christ. And looking back at verse 24, Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. And then he says, if only I may finish my course. If only I may finish my course. And the word course doesn't mean school course. Obviously, rather it means race course. Finish speaks of finishing the race or completing one's mission without dropping out from weariness, frustration, pain, or even pleasant detours. So Paul pictures himself here as as an athlete running a race. His coach, his trainer, his audience and prize is Jesus Christ. And so only one thing mattered to him that was finishing the course. Paul wanted to finish his race and he wanted to do so with joy and and in victory. And we must always keep in mind that beyond this short life, and it is short, it's like a vapor or a mist, here one minute and gone the next. And so we must always keep in mind that beyond this short life, there is a life of great joy that stretches out forever and ever into eternity. And all of those who are faithful here will enter that life and receive a crown of righteousness. And Paul, in writing to the Philippian church, said, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, there again, Paul pictured himself as a runner, straining absolutely every muscle and tendon he had, pressing toward the finish line, not looking back, not not looking around at his opponents, but looking straight ahead at the finish line in order to finish his race and win the prize. So he fights his way along the narrow path in in the power and the glory of a disciplined and God-centered life. Because he was determined to finish the course, to, to finish his race, whatever the cost. Paul refused to give up. Which meant that impending imprisonment and afflictions in Jerusalem would not keep him from going there. He traveled constrained by the Holy Spirit and he would continue on this course even if it meant losing his life because he longed more than anything to hear those words of the Master, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And of course, as we all know, Paul did finish his race and he finished it well. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And Paul finished the race, and he entered into unimaginable joy forever and ever in the presence of the Lord that he loved and served. Look back again at verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. One thing mattered to Paul, to finish the work that Jesus had given him to do. You see, Paul saw himself as a steward. 
And as many of you know, a steward was a slave who was given certain responsibilities by his master. Stewards were often given great responsibilities, such as managing all the master's possessions, and the steward was to make sure that everything was properly managed, cared for, and distributed properly. And highly trusted stewards were also given the power of attorney, so they could manage all the affairs of their master in his absence. And so though the steward as a slave, you know, personally owned little or nothing, in another sense, he possessed all things because he was in charge of all that the master had. And when the master returned, the steward knew that he would give an account of all that he had done in his master's absence. And so a steward was one who was entrusted with the responsibility of managing the master's assets, and his sole purpose was to serve the master and to please him. And the point is that Paul saw himself as a spiritual steward because his ministry was something that he had received from the Lord. And he knew that one day he was going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for what he had done with this ministry that he had been entrusted with. And as a steward, Paul knew that God required him to be faithful with all that he had received. In fact, Paul would later write to the Corinthian church saying, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy or they be found faithful. And that's what Paul wanted to be. He wanted to be trustworthy or or faithful in the ministry that Christ had given him. I mean, this was his passion. I mean, he's in essence saying, I'm I'm not going to worry about what they're going to do to me. I'm just going to finish my course and, and the ministry I receive from the Lord, I'm going to finish the job. And loved ones, you and I are also stewards. And it is required of us that we are faithful to manage all that God has given to us. You say, well, what has God given us? Everything we have. Beginning with physical life and health. Even more importantly, spiritual life. Spiritual gifts which have been given to us, not for our own private use, but specifically for use in the body of Christ for the benefit and the building up of the body. He's given us physical gifts, our time and resources. We were to manage our time and the financial resources that God has entrusted us with for his glory. And we need to understand that we're stewards, that we're managers, and we're not owners. And as stewards, we're supposed to properly manage, care for, and distribute our master's assets in a way that is pleasing to him. In other words, in a way that is according to his word. And as stewards, each one of us has been given a sacred trust for which we will all give an account. We will give an account of how we use the spiritual assets as well as the physical assets that God has entrusted to us. Paul wrote in Romans 14, verse 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So one day when our lives are over, all of us will give an account to God of what we did with all that he entrusted to our care. And this should certainly make us think much more seriously about our faithfulness and commitment in the area of serving and using the gifts that God has given us and in our giving to the Lord. Because we will give an account as stewards. 
As a steward, Paul knew that he would give an account of his ministry, and so by God's grace, he worked hard. In fact, we know from Scripture he labored to the point of exhaustion to finish his race in the ministry he'd received from God. And what was that ministry? If you look at the end of verse 24, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The word testify is the same word used in verse 21. It means to make a solemn declaration about the truth of something, to testify of or bear witness to. It means to exhort with authority in matters of extraordinary importance. And it pictures a person under oath in a courtroom solemnly swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And this word indicates to us that there was a seriousness, a a sobriety in Paul's preaching because he understood that the eternal destiny of the souls of men and women and boys and girls was at stake and he didn't take his preaching excitement lightly. It wasn't a joke for him. Paul was a faithful witness in the life he lived and in the message that he preached. I mean, he took this seriously. He was a man who testified to the gospel of the grace of God, which is the message of God's undeserved favor to guilty, ungodly sinners who deserve nothing but everlasting hell. And it tells how the Son of God's love came from heaven's glory to suffer and to die on the cross in order that those who believe on Him might receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Speaking of the immense reality of God's grace, one man said this, The power of God's holiness and justice are like a great violent hurricane. And the grace of God is like the eye of the hurricane where all is peace and calm. Grace is the center of God's reality. Grace or love is the essential calm at the center of the vortex of his infinite perfection. Paul had felt himself swept into the terror of that hurricane one day on the Damascus Road. And then to his utter amazement, he was drawn through it into the peace and beauty of the eye of grace even though he was the chief of sinners. Paul spent his entire Christian life proclaiming the immense reality of God's grace, rescuing sinners from the hurricane of God's holy wrath and giving them a place next to his own heart forever in the eye of the storm. I mean, Paul was a witness. He had a a passion for the lost. His life was one of sacrifice. He lived for one reason, to finish the work the Lord had given him to do, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God to Jews and Gentiles that he might win some to Christ. And then in verse 25, he says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I mean, Paul had served with these men for three years. But his work with them was over. And he did not anticipate ever seeing them again. And the journey to Jerusalem was dangerous. He'd face opposition there. He knew from the Holy Spirit that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. And so he had every reason to believe that this was the last time he would ever see them this side of heaven. It is possible that he may have had opportunity to return to Asia Minor after his release from his first Roman imprisonment, though he could not have foreseen that possibility at this time. And so Paul tells these men he will not see them again. 
And as he does, he reminds them of what he did while he was among them. He said, when I was with you, I was proclaiming the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The word proclaiming means to declare a message as a herald of the king. The herald of the king was a man commissioned by the king to declare exactly what the king gave him to say. He was sent out with a specific message from the king, and he was not to change it in any way. He was not to add to it or to take away from it, because in doing so, he would be misrepresenting the king, which meant serious consequences, most likely death. So the herald was to only proclaim the words that he had been commissioned to speak. Well, Paul saw himself as a spiritual herald who proclaimed the message of the kingdom, which refers to the sphere of salvation, the the rule and reign of God in the hearts of believers. And Paul had been faithful to deliver the word of God just as it had been given to him. He didn't add to it his own words, his own ideas or opinions, neither did he hold anything back. He didn't skip over the difficult issues. No, he proclaimed God's word, the whole counsel of God, and therefore he could say in verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. You say, is it true that a pastor, teacher, elder, or leader is going to be guilty of the blood of certain people? Apparently it is. Paul is making reference here to the watchman on the walls in the book of Ezekiel. The watchman was a man who was stationed on the wall of the city and his job was to stay awake and alert and to watch for the attack of an enemy. And when he saw the enemy approaching, he was to blow the trumpet warning all the people. And those who heard the warning but ignored it and were killed, well, their blood was upon their own heads. They were responsible for their own death. But if the watchman saw the enemy approaching and and didn't warn the people, then their blood was upon his hands. In other words, he would be held responsible for their death. The Lord told the prophet Ezekiel that he was making him a watchman, a spiritual watchman for Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 7 and 8, we read, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn away from his or to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. I mean it's hard to know exactly, you know, what this means. It may mean Ezekiel would be disciplined or or chastised for unfaithful ministry, or it may mean a loss of reward in heaven, or perhaps even both. We know that it does not mean that Ezekiel would be eternally condemned. He was a saved man. So that's not what it means. And then in Ezekiel 33, verse 9, the Lord continued, But if you warn the wicked to turn, turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So obviously these words in Ezekiel speak of warning sinners of the coming judgment of God and of calling them to repentance so they might be spared from the wrath of God. And Paul is telling the Ephesian elders that he had been a faithful watchman. 
He had been faithful to preach the gospel to all men, warning unbelievers, teaching believers. I mean, this is part of the whole counsel of God from which Paul did not hold back. He spoke of sin and of judgment and of salvation for all of those who repent and place their trust in Christ as God's only provision for salvation. So Paul cannot be accused by any man at the final judgment that he had not declared to them the gospel of grace. And therefore, he could stand before God on the Ephesian elders without guilt. He he had done his job. He could say with a clear conscience, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. I mean, this is a sobering reminder of the serious responsibilities that, that all believers but especially pastors and and leaders have to speak the truth of God's Word. Every pastor, teacher, every elder, every church leader has a responsibility before God to proclaim the truth because if he doesn't, he may be chastised, lose rewards in heaven or both. I mean, whatever it means, it's a serious, serious warning. Which is one reason why James said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In other words, don't be in such a big hurry to get into the teaching ministry because you're going to be judged with a greater strictness. And if you're not faithful in your proclamation of God's word, you're in big trouble. Paul could say, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Look at verse 27. For he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so what must I do along with the elders and anyone who teaches here at Calvary in order to be innocent of the blood of all of you? Well, we must declare the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I did not shrink. I didn't shrink back. And this means that there are parts of the whole counsel of God that might make a pastor teacher want to shrink back or hold back from teaching them. They might be hard to understand or more likely hard to accept. They may be uncomplimentary to human pride or they may demand radical obedience. So pastors might be tempted to declare only part of God's counsel, the part that's a little more easy and pleasant, parts that are inoffensive, parts they they know people especially like. You know, like the people in Jeremiah prophesy to us smooth things. Smooth things. Not, Not those hard things. But that would be a shrinking back from declaring the whole counsel of God. That would be cowardice and not courage. We don't need cowards at the pulpit. We need men of God who are courageous and bold and masculine. Paul didn't shrink from declaring any part of God's word. He declared to them the whole counsel of God, which refers to the entire plan and purpose of God for man's salvation in all of its fullness as it's unfolded in Scripture, divine truths of creation, election, redemption, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. And even though some parts of God's Word are unpopular or difficult, Paul didn't omit any of them in his preaching. 
He didn't withhold the truth. And he didn't add to it. No, he faithfully declared the whole counsel of God. And listen, loved ones, and I, and I know that you're aware of this because you only have to turn on Christian radio or television to know this, but there are many unfaithful watchmen in pulpits today who are not declaring to the people the whole counsel of God. And listen. Listen to me. Someone can go through the Bible, even doing it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and not proclaim the whole counsel of God. It happens all the time. It's theological vagueness on purpose. And there are many pastors and preachers today who simply use a Bible text as a launching pad to then go on and say whatever it is they want to say, never dealing with the text in its context. Others may talk about the Bible. They might even talk about something from the Bible. You know, throw in a, some Bible quotations to illustrate their points or to illustrate their stories. But they're not preaching the Bible and the truths that it contains. They're not proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Pastors are to open up the Bible, read the Bible, explain the Bible, and apply the Bible in its context. They are to declare the whole counsel of God and let the Bible speak for itself. Spurgeon said we need to open up the cage and let the lion out. Reminds me of a story I came across. There were a group of servicemen uh, speaking to their chaplain, and they asked him if he believed in a real hell for lost sinners. He smiled and told them that no, he did not. then you're wasting your time, the men replied. If there's no hell, we don't need you. And if there is a hell, you're leading us astray. Either way, we're better off without you. And that's exactly right. Paul declared the whole counsel of God, and the text clearly implies that Christians should long for the whole counsel of God in the same way as Peter said, a newborn infant longs for milk. I mean, believers in churches must demand that the whole counsel of God be taught. You know, not just interesting topics. Not just what they want to hear. Not just the things that will grab people. But all that God has to say in His Word. And preaching is not getting up and giving a theological lecture. That's for the classroom. And if not teaching the whole counsel of God is a sin, and it is, then we would have to say that not wanting to be taught the whole counsel of God is a sin as well. And Paul warned, didn't he, that in the last days people would not endure sound doctrine but would look for teachers who would tell them what they want to hear. Teachers, he said, who will scratch their itching ears. And they'll go in search of them until they find them. Loved ones, people do not need and should not want for a moment a pastor or pastors who will not teach them the whole counsel of God. 
And the temptation is always there for pastor teachers and elders and Christian workers and parents to talk only about certain topics or subjects. And certainly there are difficult subjects which are hard to teach and understand, but they must be taught. Why? Because we need the whole counsel of God. God would have not given it to us in his word if he didn't want us to learn about it. Right? I mean, like the Apostle Paul And by the grace and mercy of God, I want to be able to say, Lord, by your grace, I declare to your people the full counsel of your word. Lord, if it it was in your word, we dealt with it. And Paul looked at his life and ministry. He could say with a clear conscience that he had faithfully declared the whole counsel of God, and therefore he was innocent of the blood of all men. He had made sure that all people were warned of God's judgment and heard the gospel. And if they rejected the gospel, he wasn't responsible for their condemnation. And what Paul is doing here is holding out his life and ministry as an example for the Ephesian elders to follow. He was in essence saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's saying to the Ephesian elders, from now on, men, the responsibility is yours. And you make sure that you discharge your ministry in a way that is faithful, in the way that I have demonstrated to you by example. You see, the entire plan, purpose, and principles of God which are contained in His Word are committed to pastors and leaders who are in turn to commit these truths to other men and to the people of God. And to fail in this regard is to fail to obey the solemn responsibility that God has committed to us. We are to teach and declare the whole counsel of God knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Paul's courage and perseverance in the face of the trials that awaited him in Jerusalem would have silenced and and stopped many, many men, but not Paul. Because again, he didn't consider self-preservation as his primary motivation. He was a man of humility. Who was willing to put the interest of others ahead of his own. Thus, he was determined to fulfill his calling, which was the proclamation of the good news of the grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And here was a man who should be imitated. And here here is a man whose teaching and exhortation should be heard. And his words of, of exhortation to the Ephesian elders now follow in the remainder of this passage. And next week, Lord willing, we'll finish looking at this final part of Paul's farewell message to the Ephesian elders as he turns to the future warning these men about what the future holds and what what they were to do when he was no longer with them. And he tells them how utterly crucial their role is in the survival and the health of the church when he's gone. And then he prays with them and bids them farewell. But that's all next week, Lord willing. I was going to try to do this in two messages that I couldn't get it done. He closed with this. illustration 
for this story of the life of a missionary that many of you are probably familiar with. came across this in my reading. John G. Payton was born in Scotland in 1824. He was raised in a godly home where he came to faith in Christ. As a young man, he worked in an inner city mission in Scotland. But the Lord put it upon his heart to go as a missionary to the fierce cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. In 1839, the first missionaries to these islands had been clubbed to death, cooked, and eaten within a few minutes of landing. About 10 years later, some other missionaries had landed on another of the islands where the natives showed an interest in their teaching, and the Lord gave them about 3,500 converts in a short period of time, and they needed help in the work. So in 1857, just 18 years after the first martyrs had shed their blood on the beaches of the New Hebrides, Patton strongly sensed God's call in his life to offer himself for missionary service there. And he immediately met with strong opposition from many of those that knew him. They argued that he was leaving a certain ministry that God had obviously blessed for an uncertain future where he might throw his life away among the cannibals. I mean, his converts needed him, and besides, there were plenty of heathen at home to reach. You know, why go halfway around the world to reach these savages? He was even offered a free house and was told to name his salary on condition that he would stay at home. But these temptations only served to confirm his calling to go to the South Sea. And among the many who sought to deter him was one old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument was always the cannibals. The cannibals. You're going to be eaten by cannibals. And finally, Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Shortly after he arrived in the New Hebrides, John Patton lost his wife and infant son. In fact, he had to sleep on their graves at night for some time to keep the cannibals from digging them up and eating them. He lived in almost daily danger of his life. But God spared him, and he lived to be 83 years old. And he spent his final years traveling around the world, publicizing and raising support for the mission. And late in life, he said, Oh, that I had my life to begin again. I would consecrate it anew to Jesus in seeking the conversion of the remaining cannibals on the New Hebrides. John Patton finished his course. Because he put the ministry that he had received from the Lord Jesus above even life itself. And loved ones, I hope that each one of us will do the same. That we will make Christ first and foremost in our lives. That we can truly say, for me to live is Christ. And this doesn't mean that you should go sell everything you have and go to the mission field. It's not what this means at all doesn't mean that you should seek to go into full-time ministry. doesn't mean that at all. 
No, it means living for Christ faithfully every single day right where God has placed you. It means living out the gospel, first of all, in your home. Teaching your children, I mean, training, raising them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Teaching them the gospel. Seeking their conversion. And then, where you go to school or where you work. It's being the best employee. Why? Because you're a Christian. And you represent Jesus Christ. And you're to live your life in such a way, living out the gospel, that people will see a difference, thus giving you an opportunity then to share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's being faithful day in and day out to live for Christ, to live the gospel, to share the gospel right where he's placed you. And it means loving Christ first. And that you can't separate Christ from his word or from his church or from his people. So making Christ a priority means making His Word a priority. It means making the local church the priority in your life. The things of God the priority in your life. And it's living faithfully. Living these things out. Why? Because you, you have more than a short-term perspective. You have an eternal perspective. You're not living for the fleeting pleasures of this world, but you're looking beyond all of that to eternity. And you're living with eternity in mind. And everything in our culture is geared to turn us away from Christ. The American dream is geared to take us away from Christ and the things of Christ. We're bombarded every single day with things that are meant to turn us from Christ and to the world and to live for the fleeting pleasures of this world. And we have to say no. It doesn't mean you can't take a vacation. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the good things that God has given us, but it means you don't live for those things. Those things are not the priority. You, you prioritize Christ and the things of God. Your life centers around those things. And then you're enjoying the things that God has given you. Loved ones, we need to make Christ first and foremost in our lives. Because that's what we're called to. We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. That's the call. That's basic Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. And that's the way we need to live. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for those words and the thing you It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been set free. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 
1-800-285-96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.